When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Preacher Boys podcast. I make this show for you, and I hope that you really enjoy it. I have a lot of people that ask me how they can support the show financially, and you can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash preacherboys. You're going to get access to exclusive content, including early releases of episodes. I've got a couple episodes right now that have been released at least a month early over on Patreon. You've got access to things like unique merch, depending on what tier you join, and you get access to some behind the scenes content that I'm posting within the group. So head over to patreon.com slash preacher boys and become a member over there today. Every single supporter helps make this show a little bit more possible, especially as I continue to add additional episodes and content every single week. Thank you so much for tuning in. Let's get back to the show. Trigger warning. This podcast contains descriptions of various abusive situations. Listener discretion is advised. People kind of get on to victims about, well, why didn't you tell? Well, I just wanted to say that we often do tell and are blown off or not believed. And then we're even more crushed and devastated because we know we're not going to be believed or we'll be blamed. What I did was the wrong thing and that I shut down and thought, well, no one's gonna believe me, I'm not gonna tell anybody else. But you need to keep telling until you're heard. You are listening to the Preacher Boys Podcast, a podcast shedding light on decades of mental, physical, and sexual abuse within the independent fundamental Baptist movement. The testimonies shared on this podcast are told from the personal experience and perspective of the survivors. Not all legal outcomes are known or final. Any suspect is presumed innocent until proven guilty in the court of law. Now, here is your host, Eric Skwarzynski. All right, everybody, welcome back to the Preacher Boys podcast. Amy, thank you so much for joining me on today's show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, I'm, I'm really excited to chat with you a little bit. I absolutely love your book. And one of the quotes that stood out to me reading the book was, uh, you said, basically, I believe as children, we come in the world with one question. It's really the only thing we desire to know. Am I valuable? Do I have worth? And like adding stones to a scale, we observe and collect data, each hurt, each trauma, adding a stone to our scale until it finally tips all the way. And we have our answer. Anything after that serves as confirmation. And reading that quote really stood out to me because time and time again, talking with people on the show, you know, we hear stories of these stones being added to the scale, telling them that there's no worth telling them all of these lies about themselves. And your story really stands out to me because from a very early age, those stones were being added and 
Um, it's, it's heartbreaking. It's, it's very well described in your book. And I love your transparency in the book, sharing your story, but can you give, give my audience just a glimpse at kind of early childhood, like the beginning of your journey and some of those, those early memories? Yeah, I, I was adopted. I, um, started off feeling that I was a little bit different, um, in my family, different than everybody else. Although I know that there's kids that feel that way that weren't adopted. Um, I was sexually abused at a very young age, the age of three. And I just, it's almost like I placed a target on my back and I just, you know, began looking for confirmation of, of those things that, mm. um, you know, like the teacher having me sit in a trash can, you know, yeah. um, it just seemed like it kept happening over and over. Um, I had a swim coach that took advantage of me. I had a priest that took advantage of me as a child. Um, so yeah, I just came out of childhood with zero self-esteem. Right. Yeah. It's, it's something that's, you know, I, I did an interview yesterday and was chatting with somebody who, you know, they came from a background and family life that was less than positive and, you know, would put themselves into a, in, in this situation was a hockey player, put himself onto the ice. And that was a sanctuary. It was this kind of sacred place to escape trauma. And what's tragic is in that scenario, his coach took advantage of that, you know, and in your story, you see this happen with the priest um, and then ultimately with a therapist and these sacred spaces that should be the safest. That's what this show is really about. These places that should be the safest became places of abuse and danger. And how did that really affect your worldview and outlook, you know, as these safe spaces, family life, school, church, as those were violated, how did that affect how you looked at the world? Yeah, I realized um, at some point in adulthood that I don't think I ever felt safe. Hmm. And I think that manifested for me in ways of trying to find control where there wasn't any. Um, for example, I had an eating disorder at a young age, and I think that was about trying to find sense of, some sense of safety and something that I could be in charge of. Hmm. Um, and I could be in control of, and just a lot of other anxious um, type behaviors that way that I, that I think that's what I was ultimately searching for. Right. Yeah. The, there was something that you did throughout the book that really kind of, I mean, I'd never seen it written out like this, but you kind of talked about these unwritten rules that you told yourself and essentially these lies about how the world works. Like um, the first one you said was, you know, authority figures don't make inappropriate choices. If you feel something uneasy, the problems in you, and there's rule after rule that you develop this kind of outlook on, on the world where you internalized anything that happened as being your fault, you know, and you, you see survivors do this, you know, you see situations where this happens, but to see it written out in just plain black and white text was really startling. And, you know, and with your story, time and time again, those rules were confirmed, you know, um, in, in different ways. Um, tell me, tell me a little bit because the, the crux of your book and for anybody who's listening, seriously, pick up a copy. It, it's, it's a, it's very well written and just a very powerful story. 
but you know talk to me a little bit about this the the overall story of of your relationship with the therapist because that to me is you know that to me is like the most disturbing thing is because I, a lot of people I talk to who have experiences in the church the answer is you know we'll consider going to an actual therapist going right. to somebody who can actually help you like right and um you know your story obviously shows there can be danger even in the most safe of places so uh, what what brought you to therapy in the first place you know um and I know that there was um you know you were going for uh, to oversee antidepressant usage, right? Initially. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I, this goes back to your first question too, but uh, something else I decided at a young age that made me feel at least a little bit better about some of the things that were happening around me in my life is I felt like, well, if it's my, if it's about me and if it's my fault, then I can fix that because mm. there's enough, I'll read enough self-help books and I'll do enough therapy and I'll get medicine and I, I will fix all of these things around me that truly I couldn't control. And so it was almost, um, you know, it was another attempt at safety is blaming myself for everything. Huh. Um, fast forward to this doctor, you know, kind of the same line of thinking and I'd always had is something is wrong with me. I don't know what it is, but eventually I'll fix it. There'll be the right medication or, you know, the right type of therapy and I'll fix it. And, um, you know, when I was younger, I only went to therapists because I didn't know how to have close, intimate relationships with friends. And so therapists were like my only friend, mm. which is very sad. But I thought that they were the safest option, you know, to not be disappointed. So I would only open up with them. Um, so I was married and just struggling with, you know, the things that you struggle with as a parent of preteens. So I was just I had my ongoing depression that I'd always kind of carried throughout my life that I never could really shake. I've always been very high anxiety and it was just issues surrounding parenting and wanting to work on my marriage. And again, wanting to fix myself mm -hmm. um, so that everything then would magically be better. And I started going to celebrate recovery here in my town and it's, you know, for life's hurts, habits and hangups, I think. And, and through that process, I became um, a stronger Christian and that's where I kind of heard about this doctor. Everybody mm. raved about him. He, a lot of my friends in Celebrate Recovery saw him. My pastor's wife recommended him. And um, I found out later he was an elder at my church. And mm. I started attending the church that held this Celebrate Recovery. So everything was very new. I was starting to have close relationships. I had found this new wonderful church. I love my pastor. Um, and I thought that this doctor was, an, this therapy with him was another part of this God's plan, um, right. God showing up in my life in a big way. And so I was in a very vulnerable place um, mm. spiritually because I thought, well, this has to be God's will. I mean, it was so random how the appointment came to be, you know, a friend like didn't need her appointment and offered it to me. And I thought, well, that's a God thing. Mm. So that's kind of how I ended up there. And so I kind of started out feeling a little bit indebted to him. Like he took me like a lost puppy. Like yeah. I just showed up on his doorstep. So I kind of felt grateful that he took me because I had friends that were trying to get in and he had a waiting list and couldn't get in. Um, and he was this sweet grandfatherly bumbling type of character. And yeah. he, I knew he was odd, but, you know, so that's kind of how I ended up there yeah. kind of thinking, Oh, this is a God thing. This is it, you know, and 
his therapy was uh, much more spiritual, which I thought was weird at first, but then I thought, well, I've, this is different and that's good because yeah. I've tried other things and they had helped. So. Right. Yeah. You describe in the book that he was a very strange person, but, but I think this is important. And I always like to point this out is that, you know, he seems very harmless in the yeah. descriptions, you know um, you mentioned like the China on the shelves and like just things, you know, that were just quirky and, and yes. odd, you know, but I, I want people to know that because I think a lot of people walk into situations and they look for the creepiest, you know, most yeah. sinister looking person. And they look at other people who look exactly like the profile of, you know, this doctor and they go, Oh, he's just quirky, a little bit different. They don't read further than that. And we've so let, I think movies or television or book descriptions of what this looks like kind of cloud, you know, our, our radar a little bit for this, for this stuff. Um, going into that first appointment, you know, you mentioned it was a little bit weird, the spiritual element and things. Did you feel, it, it seemed like in the book, you felt a little bit closed off in that first meeting. Um, was that the case? Like what was kind of your experience sitting down for the first time? Oh, I was very closed off. I mean, I was probably, if I could have sat like this, I would have been, I was so uncomfortable. Um, he had a way of, like I said, like looking through me to where I felt like I didn't, you know, normally in a relationship, there's a slow building up of getting to know each mm-hmm. other. And I just felt so naked and vulnerable for whatever reason um, in there. I don't know if that was his energy, but, you know, going to counseling isn't an, a comfortable process anyway. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and you're sitting here looking at this person thinking, okay, so I'm supposed to trust you with my deepest, darkest secrets. And you know, it's just kind of an awkward situation. You feel closed in, you feel like, you know, there's, you need a trap door, you know, it's just not comfortable to begin with. And then I'm sure his kind of weirdness um, and his energy played a role, although I didn't, you know, realize that at first. Yeah. Looking, looking back now, cause I, cause this is again, all abuse is taking something that is a natural thing and tweaking it right to their purpose. So, you know, when you think about say, for example, therapy, it's supposed to feel uncomfortable, you know, and some level, there is that level of it's supposed to feel uncomfortable, but someone who has poor intentions can tweak that and, you know, excuse abuse. People say that in the spiritual realm as well, or in a cultist group like Nexium, you know, Oh, you feel uncomfortable. Like let's dive into that. Why do you feel that way? And, you know, looking back now, you know, how do you balance like just going to a situation that, you know, is supposed to feel a certain way versus identifying something that is unease and genuinely a warning sign inside. And I need to listen to that. That's a good question. Um, it is normal to feel nervous. It's normal to not know if you can trust this person, all that's good. Um, a good therapist will be patient with you Mm. as you, you know, slowly let down your guard an inappropriate therapist will you know cross that boundary too soon i.e he just on day one and i know now this was part of the grooming plan he um, went and got a, a, a blanket or an afghan out of a cupboard and came and covered me up with it and like tucked it under my chin now if he'd been my age that would have been like oh my god like what is he doing? But being as he looks like a grandpa, it was uncomfortable and weird, but not necessarily, you know what I mean, of, a, of an inappropriate sexual nature. 
okay, a normal therapist would never do that. An, uh, sure. an, an ethical therapist would, maybe they'd have a blanket and you're welcome to get it yourself. You know, if you need a tissue, you're welcome to get it yourself, you know? So, um, so they, they intrude into your boundaries in a way they shouldn't. And they do it slowly and they do it with, in a silly joking manner like that, yeah. where it's just like, you can't exactly call it. Um, that's one, that's how he got closer to me to begin with is I was emotional in once in a certain setting, which is normal. And he came over closer to me and took a Kleenex out of the box and wiped my tears with it. Again, an ethical therapist would never do this. Their goal is to teach you to take care of yourself. Mm -hmm. um, it was the same kind of thing. It was, I panicked, but yet it was sweet and it was kind of okay. Like you, you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, he's, he was trying, I, you think, well, he's just trying to be extra sweet. He's trying to make up for childhood. He's trying to play a father, grandfather role, but those are all things that an ethical therapist would not do. Right. They don't ever come into your space, um, you know, without invitation for sure. Right. Well, and you mentioned the book, especially knowing your trauma background, you know, some of the things he did, which obviously now understanding why he did it, but you know, no ethical therapist would have made any physical contact, you know, without any consent or, or anything like that. Right. And, you know, you mentioned the grooming and, and that's something that sincerely, I think your book is one of the best layouts of what the grooming process looks like. And I was, I was worried going into it because a lot of books don't spend much time on that. Um, and your book, I would say 75% is that grooming process. And you get to see this long form relationship play out. Um, you know, when we, when we talk about grooming, what I noticed chapter to chapter is that you went from that closed off to ultimately seeking his approval. And uh, you talk about the first time he put one of the, the things you made in the office during one of the sessions onto his shelf. And you mentioned like, yes, I made it to the shelf. That was a big achievement. Um, how did your mindset shift from feeling closed off to getting to a point where you were trying to seek this approval of this, you know, this father figure, this, you know, this uh, essentially therapist, doctor, whatever you want to refer to them as, um, you know, how did that shift happen and how long did that shift take to happen? I started seeing him in April and I didn't just, I guess, so the reader knows, I didn't really notice a big red flag until December. Mm, it wasn't wow. until I got out that I realized it had started. Um, but what you're asking is kind of, it's kind of something I battled with throughout the whole thing. It's like, I always had an adult part of me that was kind of, or, or it was a critical voice, but kind of standing back, like, what is this guy up to? And then I had this, you know, naive, you know, longing part of me that I think we all have. And I think abusers will tap into, you know, whatever voids we have, um, whatever weaknesses we have. And a therapist, I mean, you're sitting duck because you, you're sharing all of those things, right? they see where your hurts are. They see what you need. Um, and so it was like, I had that side battling against this part of me that was just like, this is so great. Like he sees me. He thinks I'm amazing. I feel special. I, I, I feel like I belong. Um, I'm connected. He understands me more than anybody else. You know, they're, they're giving you all these things falsely, obviously. Mm -hmm. And it's like, it's like a drug. Like you, you know, you just, 
they give it to you in just a little dose yeah. and then kind of sit back and you, and you don't, it made me feel like I was such a loser. Cause it was just like, why do you, why do you need his approval? And why do you care if you're special to him? But then part of me, it was like, that was everything, you know, it was like, I, I don't know. It's just like that void inside of me. Does that make sense? I don't know if I'm answering that well, but so it was, it was yeah. always a battle and it was kind of like a step, step process. Um, so I never, I guess you could say eventually that need in me won out, mm. you know, over logic and caution. It just, it just felt so good. And, you know, I felt alone in my life and I felt very invisible in my life and I always have. And so to, and I felt he was just this safe grandfatherly person that God was giving me just to help me see that I had worth. Right. So, yeah. Yeah. No, I love, I love that device in the book and the way that it's written where you have your, you have your quotes between the two of you, and then you have your inner monologue coming in and, you know, you'll say something. And then your inner monologue says, why did you say that? You sound desperate or you sound angry or you sound like this, basically quelling any of that feeling of discomfort, you know, saying, don't ruin this. This is a good thing essentially. Um, or this is how it's supposed to feel. It's supposed to be uncomfortable. Um, you know, in, it, it is interesting, like going through and, and how long it was before there was a red flag to show up. And that's very common. Um, typically it is retrospect. We see the red flags, right. Um, but you know, what point in the therapy process did him mentioning the idea of multiple personalities come into play? Because that's a spot where I can't imagine that was a session one conversation. Um, but, or was it? Well, I saw him seven years prior when I was new to my small yeah. town and he brought up the multiple personalities probably in session two. Wow. And I said, how do you know? And he said, I can see them in your eyes. And I was like, this guy's weird. And, um, and he brought up the evil spirits right away too. Yeah. And that one, that one plagued me a little more because I grew up hearing a lot about that. My mom talked about evil spirits and blamed a lot of things on evil spirits. So I was more willing to, to accept that one, but the multiple personalities, I was like, you're crazy. And I left and I mm. never went back and I never would have ended up back in his office. You know, had I not sadly been in this excited, naive, you know, new Christian type state and he was an elder and everybody loved him. And I thought this was God's plan. And my life was turning from black and white to color. And this had to be a part of it. So to go back to your question, I kind of knew that was looming out there hmm. and I kind of dreaded it, but part of me was so desperate. I was like, Amy, you know, that critical voice was like, do you have any other options? Like you've always been depressed. You're never going to not be depressed. Like, should you really be critical of what a psychiatrist is suggesting? Right. So I just sort of thought, all right. And so when it came up, there was sort of this awkwardness between us. I think he always knew that part of me always knew he was full of crap, hmm. but yet part of me wasn't sure. Part of me thought right. maybe he held all the answers and part of me thought he's crazy and kind of went back and forth that way. So I just decided to take it with a grain of salt. And I'm a psychology major and I know that I don't morph into different personalities. However, I've had a lot of trauma and he put it on kind of a spiritual plane to where you could have it too and not mm -hmm. know it because I didn't know it. And, um, 
and I didn't know a lot about the spiritual world because it's a little bit easily manipulated in that regard. And yeah. I really just thought, I have no plan B. Let's just see what this is about. And, and so it was very awkward at first. Um, it was a big pill for me to swallow, but then the therapy just proceeded like, like I think the first session after that was like, for him, it was searching for these missing parts. For me, it was thinking of an age where I had a lot of trauma. So I came up with an age I've talked about in therapy, which was 13. And just what did you look like at that age? You know, just describing the trauma at that age, it was sort of normal in the way that the therapy proceeded. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, So it was just, and then just, I thought, well, maybe this is kind of what being multiple is, is having stressful traumatic events kind of trapped at certain ages. And right. um, so that's how I dealt with that. But it was always weird. Yeah. And when, when you're in that desperate place, though, you're you're going to yourself. I what I'm doing is obviously not working, and yeah. how I'm processing is obviously not working. So, you know, why not try this? You know, yeah. what so feels I, almost more new age than anything. Kind of. I disregarded the, the label and just no. sort of went along with the therapy. And the therapy kind of seemed typical once we started. Now with the spiritual component, like that was different. Where, but as a Christian, it wasn't weird. I'm inviting Jesus into that broken place at that yeah. age it was kind of typical but when he wanted to name the first part I was like oh my gosh are you kidding like I was so uncomfortable um and I just sort of did what I always did just Amy just answered the question like he's just mm-hmm. asking for a name just give him a name and so I picked a name well after that he named all the parts and um yeah th- that was towards the end a red flag when he seemed so overly interested in them and their names. And he would have me um, envision like in the process, he'd have me envision spiritual armor for them. Yeah. And that didn't seem too weird, but then when he would suggest a pink dress, that was yeah. weird. But again, yeah. I was like, Oh, don't overthink it. You know? Yeah. It's yeah. just, he's just being silly. Yeah. Pink dress is the most practical armor. So it's, a, it's <laughs> an interesting suggestion. Um, yeah. 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 For those listening, I mean, it's, it's one of the strangest elements of it, you know, because there's, it, it seems so clear his process and that's something you see from the beginning. There was this intentionality between what he was doing, you know, creating the multiple personality, getting you comfortable being someone else, like basically separating into a different type of person. Um, but then the conversations of, and, and these sessions of, you know, sealing off portals and, you know, almost leaning toward an exorcism-esque kind of approach is very strange, you know? And, but again, it is one of those things where I think, especially within the Christian realm, you know, because we are open to spiritual possibilities of things and because we are, you know, especially when you're a new Christian who doesn't have all the answers or someone who's, you know, not you know, well-versed for lack of a better word in, in all these terms, when someone says inviting Jesus into this space to conquer this, or, you know, don't fight the Holy spirit or don't, and they can name spiritual words to something that's happening. It it's, it's hard to deny, you know, there's no, how do you deny that he's right? He's a, he's a professional, he's a Christian, he's an elder in a church, you know, like he has as much authority as one person could possibly have in your life. And, um, it was just interesting and, you know, looking back at that, you know, I was kind of curious 
so he split off very heavily into these different personalities. Um, I think the first, I wrote a note that, yeah, the first was Nicole. Um, it kind of starts breaking down and his explanation was basically that any abuse you'd experience had left some evil within you. Was that basically his explanation? Yeah. He told me that the source of my depression was evil spirits. Hmm. And, you know, had I not heard about that a lot as a child, it would have been probably like run for the hills. I'm like I'm out. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, you know, my sister passed away at a young age and, mm. you know, my mom mentioned evil spirits again for that. And even mentioned that she thought that side of the family had a curse on it. And so, you know, I grew up hearing this a lot and I thought, you know, as bad as I felt on the inside, I thought maybe I do have evil in me because I haven't been able, that makes sense. Cause I haven't been able to shake this anger and depression. Yeah. Um, and I was going to tell you when, you know, I, did I find it weird at first? Yeah. And I, I went to my pastor's wife, who was a good friend and, and I thought she would be like, Oh, well, that's weird. But she said, Oh no, this spiritual war- warfare, Amy is very real. And, and that, um, her husband, my pastor, and this doctor would do this type of spiritual warfare prayer, exorcism type, evil spirit wow. type prayer all the time. So I was like, oh, okay. Hmm. You know, it, that was all new to me. Yeah. So was that part of the teaching within the church was when it came to mental health, was that often referred to as spiritual warfare or was that something that just kind of happened behind closed doors that you kind of found out yeah. about? Yeah, that wasn't anything that I'd really ever heard at church. I was Mm. new, you know, I had been, um, I'd grown up Catholic and then I'd been out of church for several years and then I'd started attending this church. I'd probably only been going for a year. So I'd probably been, you know, learning more about the Bible for about a year. So no, that wasn't something that I'd ever heard. But to me, as somebody who felt so defective and who felt felt like I tried everything, I was like, sure. Maybe, yeah. Why not? I mean- What's so sad is that, you know, when you start therapy and you're able to have someone to talk to and you're able to open up and you're able to feel like you're connecting with someone and you're able to share these heavy things, you start to feel better. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I was just singing his praises and I was thinking that what we were doing must be helping because I was feeling better. It was Um, effective. Yeah. Yeah. What really was happening was he was making me feel special and Mm -hmm. heard. And of course that feels, feels good. Right. Um, but I was, you know, in my journal, I was just thanking God for the blessing that for that he sent me with this person. Right. So um, I, the therapy wasn't helping, but I thought it was right. So I thought, well, this is working. And, you know, some of the experiences, because for me, they were real, they were real experiences. I was just remembering mm-hmm. myself at these ages. I was imagining Jesus coming to these broken parts of me and some of them felt healing. Mm-hmm. So as soon as I, again, think the doctor is a little off his rocker, I would think, but that's disrespectful to God because this is helping me. And these I'm having yeah. some special spiritual interactions with God, right? right. That I cherished. Yeah. So that's why yeah. it was so hard to see. Yeah. It's so hard to critique because in a way I felt like I was, I didn't really know who was doing the therapy, God and the Holy Spirit or the doctor. And so if I got critical, was I criticizing mm-hmm. God's work or? Yeah. Were you ungrateful for the breakthroughs and were you, yeah. yeah. It, you talked about, you know, him building that special relationship and like, you know, grooming, probably a better phrase. Um, 
And, you know, he did that again. And I love that you go into description about this, you know, like there's little things you mentioned throughout, you know, switching the type of candy in his office for you, um, extending the appointment times uh, for you, uh, telling you your story was unique, like your specific situation with him was unique, um, you know, wanting to be able to wrap you up and protect you from anything ever happening again. It's, you know, over the course of time, hearing that enough, like, again, that's someone stepping in and giving you what you had always wanted and needed to hear, but it was coming from an unhealthy place. And I'm curious, like, and obviously, you know, we're skipping quite a bit that could definitely be found within the book, but I, I, you know, when you came to the first point where you left the office, you know, and you ran out to your car and, you know, tell me a little bit about like, what was it about that situation that was like a big enough red flag to notice, like, this is definitively objectively wrong. And, um, and then I do want to dive into telling a friend about what was happening for the first time. Cause I think the response of the friend has a lot of lessons within it as well. Yeah. It started, I, I got out in July and I want to say in the spring, I started battling back and forth with God, is this you telling me to get out or is Satan trying to take away something that you're giving me that's good? Because the doctor was more trying to lure me into what I felt like was an emotional affair with his Mm -hmm. emotional sharing and telling me he loved me and all these things. There wasn't anything physically inappropriate. So I knew that where he was headed was wrong, but Mm -hmm. I still didn't think we were like doing anything wrong. Right. I, I was just sitting next to him and he was like a father or a grandfather to me. So I was kind of telling God, like, I know, you know, I'm going to take care of, I'm going to fix it. Like, yeah. Um, and then I would think, well, maybe this is Satan trying to take away something God gave me. Like, mm-hmm. um, and of course I brought that to the doctor's attention and he said, yeah, Satan's trying to do the same thing to me, make him think that this is, you know, whatever. But yeah. so I was already kind of in that place and kind of struggling with it. And I was struggling. I'm very conscientious. I, if I think I'm disappointing God, I'm just devastated. So to be doing the wrong thing there was really hard for me. And I was praying that prayer, you know, God, is this, is this wrong? Or like, is this, is this your, a gift? I don't, I don't know. Um, I know parts of what he's suggesting is wrong, but, um, and I was at a, at a function and a friend said, um, it doesn't matter if what you're doing is wrong, right or wrong, moral or immoral, if it's messing with, with you or your relationship with God in any way, it's wrong. And I was mm-hmm. like, oh, that's my answer because I had started seeing the word adultery in the Bible. And I was like, okay, no more reading the Old Testament. And then I started seeing it in the New Testament. I was like, no more reading the Bible because I got to figure this out. And, mm-hmm. and God, I'm, I'm not sure if this is bad. Like, um, and so it was amping up like that. And then towards, I'm trying to think, a huge red flag was when he said, if it, if we, if we ever try to do the really intimate stuff, um, which we had already discussed that just having a close connection and, Mm -hmm. you know, just sitting close, that was intimate and great. And he said, if we try to, if we ever try to do the really intimate stuff, then we'll need to make sure that your younger parts are in the back. And I was like, what? Um, I literally didn't know what he was talking about. And then, but I was like, really intimate stuff. I already thought this was kind of bad, you know, kind of immoral. And then he brought it up again. He, he asked me if, um, 
if I was going to have more kids. And again, I was totally not knowing where this was headed. And I said, yeah. oh no, you know, and he said, well, um, I, I decided, you know, I, I didn't have any, um, we would need birth control essentially what he was saying, but he says, well, if we ever do the really intimate stuff, we'll have to be careful of that. And I was like, careful of what? And I was like, oh my God, he thinks he's going to have sex with me. Like, oh my God. And so it was just like, I have got to get out of here, but you know what? I couldn't leave. He told me it would devastate him. If I ever left, I felt guilty leaving. I felt indebted to him. He hadn't been charging me. And, you know, before he was hurting me, he'd been helping me. Mm -hmm. And I don't know. I just, I knew I tried forever to leave on my own and I just couldn't do it. So I knew I was going to have to tell and tell somebody. And, um, so I'm sorry that I haven't really answered that question It's bleeding into another question, but I did tell my closest friend, um, who was the pastor's wife and she didn't, I mean, she didn't believe me. Um, and I didn't want to tell anybody else. I, I certainly didn't think I could tell my husband because he wouldn't understand. He would think I was cheating and I wasn't cheating. And, yeah. um, so then I was kind of on my own again. And so then, um, trying to think this, this was the final flag, um, before I ran out the door, I thought, you know, if he cared about me and if he really knew he was hurting me, he'd stop. And then, and then it could just be back to being safe and, and okay. And I felt like I couldn't lose it. Like, I don't know why I felt that way, but I went in, sat down on the ottoman in front of him and just crying and said, I can't do this anymore. Um, this makes me sad even to say, but I said, can we just leave our clothes on? Can you just talk with me? Can we just talk? And he, I needed to see this cruelty because I had seen it in glimpses, but I hadn't really fully seen it. I still thought he's, he's a, he's a loving person. He, he wouldn't be hurting me on purpose for sure. He got this cold, icy look and kind of laughed and said, you want to talk? Sure. We can talk. What do you want to talk about the weather? And then he brought up a bunch of things that he knew I hated and he laughed and I just saw pure evil. And I just, and it was just so heartbreaking because I kind of knew, but I didn't want to know. And that, that was the moment that I was like, yeah, this is all a joke. This whole thing's a joke. He doesn't care. He doesn't love me. He doesn't care about me um, at all. And sadly, I went through the motions that day because it felt like I had no other choice. And then I left him and never went back. Yeah. But I, I just, I needed to really, really see it because I couldn't believe that someone could really be that cruel. Right. And when I'd see glimpses, you know, so. Yeah. Yeah. No, I know when you reached out to your best friend at the time, the first thing that was mentioned was, um, you know, not to say anything about it because it would hurt his wife, who was a great person and oh yeah, thinking, you know, well, why is she being brought into this? What does that have to yeah. do with what I'm yeah, talking she's a about? Yeah, she's lady. Right. Yeah. When I read that like four times, I kept reading back and I was like, salt to the what? And then I kept going back and then, uh, right. I was like, okay, I get what's being said here. Um, and it's just, it's, you know, that unfortunately so often first of all, it's like, don't one, it's alluding to the fact it's a mutual, you know, relationship, which it was not, but, but also too, like it that silence for, because it's going to cause some kind of discomfort or issue, you know, is so common, especially within church settings, you know, and, um, you know, I'm, I, I kind of want to talk about the, this all 
crashing down because now, I mean, there is a plethora of articles and videos about this man and about this story. How did that come to a head? Because obviously, you know, at this point you're thinking you're the only one that this has happened to, you know, you're, you're leaving it behind. Um, how did this all kind of come to a head and, and kind of crash down uh, on him? At first, I just wanted out and I mm-hmm. went to my, my pastor's wife didn't really want to hear me. So then I went to my pastor and he yeah. believed me. And, and my only goal was just help me get out, just sit with me during one three hour long appointment. So I don't cave. And so he doesn't weasel his way back. And then, you know, my pastor was like, he can't be an elder. And even then I was like, no, I'll leave the church. I just, just get me out of here. Mm-hmm. He, I don't care. He helps other people just leave him be. And then, um, you know, it took me a while to process my emotions of, I still felt guilty turning in that part of me, even wow. though I knew he had hurt me, but it was almost like, well, he just hurt me. It's just me. He doesn't hurt other regular people. There was no inkling that there would be anybody else at that oh, point. Oh yeah. No, no. Yeah. In fact, yeah. I think it was my pastor who said, where there's smoke, there's always fire. Hmm. And I was like, so you think it's not just me? And he said, I, I know it's not just you. And I was like, oh, okay. Wow. You know, I just thought it was some bizarre thing with me. Did, did, did the pastor seem surprised? Sorry to interrupt you, but I, I just was curious. Did he seem surprised or was he very like, just because it sounds like he's being very matter of fact. Like, was he yeah, shocked you know, by he, this? I think he must have a really good poker face because he seemed very unaffected. And I had to ask him later. And I, I think he did a lot of processing, but in that moment, I don't know if it was shock or what he just sort of went into action mode, you know, just, yeah. Um, you know, I, I kind of wondered, did he doubt me first or, but I think he did a lot of that after we had our conversation. I think he started, you know, did his processing, but as far as I was concerned, he was pretty much like I portrayed it just sort of like, like he believed me right away. And I was really mm-hmm. grateful for that. Yeah. Um, and he confronted him within a week mm-hmm. and I was out of town. I, I don't know if you read that far, but I had, a pre-planned yeah. trip to Canada. So vacation, Canada. yeah. Yeah, and so I, you know, I, that was very good. And then it was, I just needed a few weeks. You know, I felt like I had been in a, uh, like a wave pool. I couldn't think straight for so long when I was in this and I needed to just get out and clear my head to be able to really think. And I had to write everything out for my pastor. And in doing that, I kind of started connecting more dots. And I thought, oh, maybe the grooming started well, first, the idea that I was groomed was a shock. Um, I think it was that first week out when I was in Canada that I was like, was he grooming me? I think he might have been grooming me. So it just took me a while. And when, and when and I that friend that I was with is the one that turned him into the medical board. Okay. Eventually, I was ready to report. Um, but I, I pulled up the site and it had this little box and it said, describe in a thousand words or less your experience. And I was like, I, I don't. I don't even know what to say. And so I, that overwhelmed me and I shut it off. Luckily, the medical board called me, you know, right around that time when I was ready to report myself. So, um, so I, I went through that process and then um, eventually it felt like justice, but not really. And it just started to eat at me more and more. And I thought I have to do more. This just isn't, isn't right. He pretended to retire and move away. And so then I decided that I would, well, I looked into filing criminal charges, but I learned that 
therapist abuse is only illegal in 50% of our states. Yeah, and sadly, I'm not in one of them. And so a very wise attorney in this field of therapist abuse said, therapist slash clergy abuse said, um, they'll destroy you and your family and he'll probably walk. So, you know, like whatever you do, don't pursue that route. So I did a civil suit. Yeah. So I hope I answered your question. I don't know if I. Yeah, I no, I definitely. And, and that was one of the things that was jarring reading through uh, some of the articles and watching the news reports is that in Oklahoma, you know, uh, a therapist having sex with a patient um, was not illegal. It was for doctors and teachers, but not for therapists, which is, again, it was one of those things where you're just like, how have we come so far in understanding sexual abuse with the Me Too movement, with so many of these cases coming to the forefront, but yet we're so far behind in understanding, you know, how much access a therapist of all people, you know, I mean, I would say, especially in this case where there's the religious side and the therapy side, like it's worse than pastoral abuse in how much access and leverage they have. Um, How vulnerable you are sitting there. You're supposed to let your guard down. That's how therapy works. Right. If you're not trusting, it's not going to work. And yeah. And there was a Senator here that tried to pass, I think just a misdemeanor in mm-hmm. our state and just, and it was a small fine, like $500 or something, which angered me as if, you know, a doctor, as if that's like, it was like $10 for him. Yeah. It felt like, yeah. um, and well, just putting a price at all on it is oh, like, how do you numerically. Yeah. And it just sounded so pitiful and yeah. nobody, and it didn't pass. And he eventually stepped down as Senator and told me he was sorry, but nobody else was interested. And I still intend to work on that type of legislation here because it's just not okay. I mean, you don't have any protection when you're in an office like that. There's not even a nurse that sometimes comes in at the doctor's office. Um, so, yeah. What, what do you think uh, kind of pivoting toward now? Cause I know you said you want to focus in on legislation moving forward. Um, you know, what do you think, speaking to Oklahoma specifically, why do you think there's such resistance against implementing laws like this? I was told by um, my attorney who, I had two attorneys, but the one here locally told me that I was in such a conservative county that he won't even try an abuse case against a doctor here. He said the doctors are so tight knit and they will not vote against one of their own. Um, I don't I don't really know how to answer that as far as like state sure. to state. Um, I just know that was news to me. And, you know, a lot of times it's a good old boys club and, you know, I felt really grateful and blessed that the medical board doctors handled my case the way they did because they're doctors. And I just felt like they wouldn't be that hard on their own, but they were. Um, So, yeah, I don't know. I don't know all the things that play into that. Right. Yeah. It's it's always shocking. And it is, I mean, especially when you get into religious exemptions within certain States, um, you know, there's so much protection um, for abusers and so little protection for abused. Um, I, I do want to ask uh, just two more questions here, you know, for someone who may be listening to this and is, you know, resonates with this story because, you know, again, stories are different, but they repeat, you know, and, and different forms of abuse happen over and over again uh, across the country, around the world if someone is resonating or relating to this story and they did want to go through the process of reporting, obviously law enforcement 
should be the first call, but also uh, you mentioned like the therapist exploitation um, link line. Are there any other resources or steps you would advise someone who's been going through this same process to take uh, when it comes to reporting a therapist or, or any form of doctor really? Um, yeah, TELL, Therapy Exploitation Link Line, was excellent. They, they focus on therapist and clergy abuse, and um, they will reach out to you. If you email them, they will email you back, and they are all adults, professional adults who have experienced adult abuse as well. And they were the ones who gave me, um, they have an attorney, Linda Jorgensen, who, you know, kind of makes it her retirement life mission to advise people in our position. And she's the one that told me that she thought I had a strong civil suit and recommended an attorney, which was Stan Sparrow out of Boston. He was wonderful. And you can use attorney in a different state. They will just have to hire yeah. someone to work with you just so people know that. And then on my website under resources, um, I list as many um, resources as I can. I list as many medical boards because every license has a different licensure board. Mine was a doctor. But their social work has a board, psychologists have a board, you know, marriage and family therapy, they all, marriage and family therapists, they all have different boards. So you do have to locate the, the specific licensure board in your state. And I have as many of those as I have been able to find. But I would say start um, with looking over that and start with reaching out to tell or reaching out to me or someone else who relates to this kind of abuse because you can really be hurt reaching out to an attorney blindly. I went to two attorneys and they made me feel like this big. They were like, well, why would you go back? Like I was a complete loser. Um, they don't understand it. You have to go to somebody who specializes in this kind of abuse. And I've noticed now on the TELL website that they have listed several different attorneys yeah. in different states that focus on only this kind of abuse. Yeah. Um, you almost need trauma-informed attorneys, you know, and that's why, and it is hard too. I mean, it's one of the hard things with lawyers and it's why I'm so careful. I had a lawyer reach out to me, you know, asking if I'd share what they do on the show. And I was just, you know, I'm so hesitant because I, you know, there are very good lawyers. I've had lawyers on the show that are fantastic and, and do great work, but also with the advent of the, the me too movement and with the, you know, outing of the Catholic church abuse scandals, there's a lot of lawyers too, who are just hearing a bell ring saying there's a lot of money in these cases and they're not handling victim relationships well. And much like, you know, much like going to law enforcement can be traumatizing, going to a lawyer who is in it for just the money or doesn't understand religious trauma or doesn't understand, you know, the nature of these cases, it can set you up for a pretty bad situation. And I'm so, so careful with who I recommend on the show, yeah, if anybody. Yeah. I was more brutalized in my deposition by the defense attorney than I think I've ever been in my entire life. And it's so unfair. Yeah. Um, we did win that case, but it was almost not worth it. It was so yeah. hard. And I was going to say, um, there is a Facebook group that I'm a co-admin of called Clients Harmed by Therapy. And that's just one of another source of support for victims. And I suggest finding something like that or reaching out to somebody who understands because the civil suit, like mine took three years, it can be a really brutal process. Right. Even the licensure process for some people can be really difficult. Right. And it's just, it's very hard to find adult victims. Most of them don't speak up. And, yeah. you know, I know I sure didn't want to. And I think you need some support right. going through yeah. it. 
Well, um, I, I wanted to ask as well, um, just kind of closing out here, you know, we talk about obviously the church's response and, you know, the pastor's response to you is a positive one, you know, believed you, which is more than, more than most people I've talked to get, um, you know, um, but when it came to his decision to not go to law enforcement, you know, that came up in one of the news news reports, um, he did help reporting to the medical board, I believe. Um, he, at least yeah. it sounded like that. Okay. So, you know, when you look at that specific situation and the lack of reporting to the police, lack of reporting even to the board, then it sounds like, what do you think that decision was rooted in? Do you think that he didn't see any kind of legal crime committed? Was it more if he saw it as a moral issue or was it something where it was a defensive posture toward the ministry itself? What do you, what do you think led to that decision? Oh, I think it's definitely a defensive posture for the ministry. I think his answer was something along the lines of, well, we're just trying to do what's best for the victims and something like that. And it was so painful to listen to that because it was, it was so scripted. And so I just imagined a cardboard pastor yeah. sitting there and <clears throat> um, I was blessed in that he did the right thing. And then it went into PR mode mm-hmm. and I felt absolutely devastated. And like I was telling you earlier, I, I eventually told him, if you can't talk to me, like I'm one of your daughters, you cannot talk to me about this again, because it is way too painful for you to talk about my abuser and myself as sinners that you're trying to help and people that have issues that you're trying to help as if we're one and the same. And, you know, yeah, my abuser left my church, but then I got to, I got to sit with the gossip mill where I still to this day don't know. And I'm in a small town. I still to this day don't know who knows what version, who knows the doctor and his wife's version, or who knows the truth because, you know, the pastor and the elders don't tell the church what yeah. happened. So, I mean, I, I still feel uncomfortable, you know, like in the grocery store, I just feel like I have this scarlet letter, like that's that girl with the doctor thing, you know, with the elder that made him, and it, it's awful. And I feel like, and I'm not a pastor and I know, I just feel like it's fair that if a victim is attending a church, I feel like it is fair that the church gets to know the truth about the story. They can mm-hmm. still side with the abuser or they can still gossip, but I feel like they should at least have a right to know the facts, especially right. you know, when it's been documented in, you know, the medical board report or, um, you know, just something so right. that they're like, Oh, I had no idea because right. the other victim that came forward came forward because someone came up to her after church one Sunday and said, Hey, did you hear that girl that reported the doctor has done that to tons of doctors and God bless her. She, something in her snapped. And she said, well, I don't know that girl being me, but I'm here to tell you that he took advantage of me too. So you can go back to your source and tell him to stop telling lies. And that person was just like dumbfounded. And, you know, but, and so, yeah, she stuck up for me in that situation, but I mean, the church is huge and it's, And then I don't know. And then I think we'll do pastors talk. Like I can't, I don't feel there's anywhere I can go in this town where. And pastors do, (laughs) you know, yeah, where I'm not scared at because I don't know what version's going out there. Right. Well, And it's it's so when the facts aren't out there, you know, no one can make an informed decision. You know, it, it, it's bad enough when the truth does come out and people do side with the abuser, but you know, there's congregations who the, their 
their information source is the pulpit. So if they don't hear it from there, then anything else is just free game. You know, Fair if they game. can, it's, yeah. it's a, it's a really scary situation to be and in. And you know how media is the media. Right. Yes. It was good that the media picked it up in a, in a way, but then it's also damaging to the victims because they, they mixed several of our stories together. Yeah. And so people reading it that know me don't know which parts are me and which parts aren't. And it was all dra dramatized and it's yeah. just awful. It's it's going into the grittiest of details oh, yeah. because they need the and, clicks. And yeah. They're just putting out little feelers that allows you to imagine the worst. So there's no mm -hmm. truth in that either. Yeah. Um, so that, I think that's the hardest part and is so unfair. And um, I reached out to my pastor like several years later because I don't have anyone I can talk to about this mm -hmm. and very few people that know everything that happened from beginning to end. And it's not something you can share over coffee. Right. And he told, yeah. he told me, um, you need to talk to the pastor at your new church as if I'm going to walk in there and launch, how am I going to launch into this story? And so yeah. I felt very abandoned and I get it. He's busy, but it's just hard. Yeah. It's hard. I feel really rejected by yeah. the church. Really? Well, it's, it's it's one of those things where you know at what point are you too busy for this <laughs> you know it, it there's this right. level there... of this is what your job is you know is to minister to people who are going right. through traumatic situations you know to be a spiritual yeah. guide it's in you know i think you're fair i think i think that's one thing even talking yeah. beforehand i think you're you're fair in understanding that yes you can't be the sole focus of the attention of, you know, the pastor and, you know, and you credit the good things that were done, but also there's many ways in which this was mishandled, you know? And I think that's, I don't sense a, just, you know, to steal a Christian buzzword. I don't sense a bitterness in that. I think there's just a fairness. And I think it is the, where media does fail. And I say that as someone who's loosely, I guess, media, I've got a microphone in front of me, but I think where media fails when they're writing articles or short form content is that you do miss so much of the story and it does leave too much into in interpretation. And it's what I like about having these hour long conversations is yeah. you have a lot of time to say, here's what happened. Here's why I did this because in a vacuum, a decision you made may seem off or it may seem weird, but when you read through the book and you're in chapter six, you're going, I understand every step along the way, why this is happening. We're in a podcast listening to somebody for an hour. I understand how it got to this point and how do we fix this? And that's the conversation. I hope that this book and this podcast and this episode and interview does is just make people go like audit, audit themselves, audit the way they deal with abuse and these conversations and within the church itself, how do we change this conversation when abuse does come out? Yeah. And that's makes me feel so good that when you were reading it, you got it because what I wanted to show is it's so easy to judge a victim and it's especially easy to judge an adult victim. Yeah. I mean, nobody else would fall into that. Right. And I didn't even think I could fall into it. So I needed to see for myself mm -hmm. on the page, how on earth did this happen? And that's why it is so detailed and so play by play, because they need to know how methodical it is and how sneaky it is and how slow it is when it needs to be slow and just, just mm -hmm. how, how they weasel their way in there. And they are experts at what they do. Yeah. Um, and I, I was very healing. I had an attorney tell me, um, that if you, if other patients of his weren't victims, it's because he didn't target them. 
Mm. That made me feel so good. Yeah. I know I have vulnerabilities and I know I have a history of abuse, but they are also skilled at what they do. Exactly. Yeah. And they're taking advantage of professional, intelligent people. Well, you're, yeah, exactly. I mean, you're not, you're not, and I hope again, for anybody's listening, who is holding this within, it's not that the person who's been victimized is dumb or weak. It's that the person who's manipulating is extremely skilled and that is their goal. And, and again, it's, it's, it's like playing a game with someone who's playing by a different set of rules. Like you're going in, not in the defensive mode that you should be in going into a situation like that. And they're, they're going in, in an offensive mode. So by the time you can start playing defense, you're the game's almost over. Like you're, you're already in this deep, deep, deep in this. And that's where I mean it. Like I'm not blowing smoke because I'm hitting record and I'm talking to you about your book. Like it is, it is a long form description of grooming that I just haven't, I've read so many books on abuse in the last two years, especially. And I think it's a great primer on what that looks like at scale. And I, 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 I can't say enough, like how thankful I am that you did. And I'm sure it would have been easy to skip over this and get to positivity and healing and all of the things that are easier to talk about, but it is, I think it's phenomenal that a good chunk of the book is that slow methodical process of what that looks like. Um, and I, I just think for anyone who doesn't understand the grooming process or they hear that word and don't know what that really means, or they just have a a textbook definition. I think it's a great practical, like, here it is. This is exactly what it, what it is. And when you said that earlier, one of the things that I beat myself up about afterwards was, um, again, how could I not, how did I not catch on to him sooner? And how was I not more prepared? But here's the thing I realized, and somebody told me this, you know, you don't, we don't think like sociopaths and (laughs) that's a good thing. And so whenever he would do something that was just purely evil, you know, my brain, I had, I could only interpret it through my own lens Mm -hmm. and my own experience. And my lens would say he would never do someone wouldn't do something that cruel so that, that that can't be you're just misunderstanding it or and even though I hated myself for a while I started to realize you know what I love that I love that I'm empathetic and sensitive and I love that I would always give somebody the benefit of the doubt that's right. a good thing right we're Absolutely. not going to be a match for a sociopath but that's okay because I don't want to be able to think like that right well that was that was one of my favorite things that um you know, my conversation with Sarah Edmondson with Nexium, you know, like talking through that, it was like, it was like, oh, these, you were a strong, independent, you know, like both of them, strong, independent, hardworking, successful people who had a desire to do good in the world. Like they were far from being just a easily, you know, an easily deceived and brainwashed person. Like that wasn't the case. It was, it was leveraging those positive things, those positive needs, those positive desires, and just turning it ever so slightly. And again, once you're in it and it's too late to realize, you know, it's, it's, you're in a, a really tough spot. Um, I, I'm curious that at, just at the very end here, you know, like I mentioned, a lot of places that were sacred spaces for healing were violated. And I, I, I'm curious about your healing process now. Um, what does healing look like for you now? Um, you know, cause I, I have to imagine there's trepidation going into a therapy context again, or even a church context again. 
Um, what does healing look like for you now? What has that process been for you? And maybe what advice would you give to someone who's in a, a similar situation? Yeah, some of the things I did, well, contacting Tell helped and initially just having other people tell me I'm not the only one on the planet. Yeah. That was all I needed in those first few weeks because I knew that I was and that I was just the most effective human being, you know. And then I realized that I did need therapy, even though I was terrified because it's too much for your friends to be able to handle and your loved one, yeah. <laughs> you know. So um, I eventually found a therapist and I did a year of EMDR therapy. And mm. that is used with trauma such as military and PTSD, things like that. And I do think that really helped me. Um, that, uh, that relationship unfortunately didn't end so well, but you know, I won't get, go into that. She wasn't abusive, but she just kind of flipped out when she got a request for my medical records and just started screaming at me. And so then I was like, okay, now I'm officially done with therapy. But um, years later, uh, it was kind of like this abuse and this trauma, it kind of had a delayed effect on my family. Mm. And it was like, I don't know how many years later, just everything fell apart. Um, mm. And I and I desperately needed help. And I found a great therapist here in town. Um, and he was Christian and even went to my old church. And I said, mm -hmm. we're going to have to have a talk about this ahead of time. <laughs> right. We did. Let's lay that out right yeah, now. I, like, yeah. I got to get a few things straight with you. And, and we did. And he was great. And he helped me really just on damage control of my life and my children and my marriage and everything falling apart. So I did those things. And then really it was my self-esteem. That was the big one because um, even after I worked on forgiving the abuser, which that was a process in itself. I don't know if you right. want me to go into that, but um, I feel like God kind of helped me there and kind of showed me through that. Um, it was really addressing myself and my self-hatred right. and my refusal to forgive myself for what happened. Even though I knew that it wasn't hundred percent my fault or even my fault at all, I just didn't forgive myself for not leaving sooner. And so being a writer, I just I started writing in the form of poetry, like kind of like love letters to myself um, from God, but it doesn't have to be from God. It can just be to yourself, you know, and I just wrote and wrote and wrote about, you know, who I was and, and, and my goodness and things like that. And I would even rebuttal myself. I'd say, but look what I, you know, look what I allowed. And I'd say no. And I'd come back. And I did that over and over until that really took root. And that was one of the bigger things that I think helped me because in, Forgiving myself was the last thing I was able to accomplish, probably and, took years. And what did forgiving him look like for you? Because again, that's a, that's a word, it's such a loaded word when you say it to, uh, especially to survivors of abuse and rightfully so, because it's been weaponized, you know, so often forgive, forget, you know, let them oh, move yes. on. And um, it triggers me but, too. But I know that's not what you mean. So what yeah. does forgiveness look like? Um, in your life, how would you define forgiveness in these situations? For me, I grew up, I had so many abusers and I lived most of my life angry and bitter and angry with God and shut down. And I just didn't want to go back to that place. I just desperately didn't want to go back to that place. And so I knew that I was going to have to forgive, but I'm very honest. And I told God, well, I can pray for his forgiveness, but I don't mean it. So what's the point? And, um, I mean, you're going to know I'm lying. So um, I eventually heard a girl speaking and she talked about 
how her brother had abused her and how she felt like God was telling her to pray for his salvation. And I said, okay, I know this is for me, God, but here's the thing. I'm not going to mean it. So I, I don't really know how I'm supposed to pray for somebody's salvation when I, when I don't mean it. And so I, I just kind of struggled with that for a while, prayed with that, uh, about that for a while. And I just started thinking that God doesn't make evil sociopaths. And I started thinking, well, you know, I, I clearly don't want the person I encountered to be in heaven. And so, but, you know, if, if God restored him to the person he was, then I might be okay with that person being in heaven. And I know this all sounds very silly, but I just started thinking, well, I, I can pray for that person because I trust God and I trust that he didn't um, make this evil human being. And so I'll pray for that person. So I started praying that God restore him to the person he made him to be. And if he, and then, and then if it was his will that he go to heaven and I was okay with that, that's how I could justify it. And I prayed that and prayed that. And I just feel like it eventually took root. And I, because I felt like the doctor wasn't really in my thoughts anymore. I felt, I feel indifferent to him now. I feel he wasn't controlling him. you even yeah, mentally. I mean, yeah. Does it make me angry that he gets to walk away without being registered as a, a sex offender? Yes. Yeah. It's not fair, but, um, do I feel, do I have given any energy towards him anymore? No, it, it was yeah. only about me wanting my energy back that, you know, he'd already taken so much from me and from my family and from my children that, um, he just wasn't going to have anymore. So that is why I worked on forgiveness, not because it's what you're supposed to do as a good person or, or as a Christian. And, and it was difficult and it took me years, um, I have had a harder time with forgiving the church in general or feeling comfortable in a church in general. And I'm, I won't go into that now, but you know, that's kind of a different beast and I'm, I'm still working on that. I'm not sure what that's going to look like for me. Well, I think myself and so many people listening would resonate with that unknowingness, I guess, when it comes to that. Um, but it's, you know, it, it's tragic. We're at that place where that's even, you know, where you have to wrestle with, do I feel safe going into a place of worship or spiritual healing that it's unfortunate we're there, but I, I have to say, thank you so much for, for sharing your story. And, you know, I, again, I think a lot of these conversations don't have resolutions, you know, I think there's, you know, I think just having the conversation in and of itself is healing for a lot of people. I think it's healing for people to hear, you know, even if it wasn't with a therapist, it was with a pastor or anybody to hear their story similarly played out and to see that there is hope and healing and that you can eventually step out from under that control and, and thrive is a, yeah. is a powerful thing. So thank you so much for, for sharing your story. It, it means a lot to me and to, to my audience. Can I say one thing that I wanted to say to victims? Absolutely. This is kind of important to me because people kind of get on to victims about, well, why didn't you tell? Well, I just wanted to say that we often do tell and are blown off or not believed. And then we're even more crushed and devastated because we know we're not going to be believed or we'll be blamed. And so the first person I went to, um, even when I told her about a sexual assault in a detailed manner that happened before, a few months before I left, she said, well, maybe he was just trying to teach you to stick up for yourself, um, abusing me so that I could then respond. And so what I did was the wrong thing and that I shut down and thought, well, no one's going to believe me. I'm not going to tell anybody else, but you need to keep telling until you're heard because 
you know, you might go to somebody who either has abuse in their own history, or it's going to really, um, you know, I was going to the pastor's wife who this was a church elder. That's not really a person who's in a place of really wanting to deal with something like that. In fact, it was really painful when it was all said and done. I asked her why she didn't go to the, go to her husband and just say, you're not going to believe what Amy said today. Um, she said, well, I just, because he was an elder, I just didn't think I could go to the church with just that. Hmm. And that just that plagued me for years. And it's still hard for me. And it still makes me angry because it's like, well, what does it have to be before it's more than just that for us? Um, but had I kept telling, you know, and had I gone to other friends, you know, I had a friend that said, Amy, if you'd said, if you told me even a little bit of that, you would have never gone back. Hmm. There are people that will hear you and you've got to keep talking until, until they do. No. I love that. Yeah. I love that clip. Um, I'm definitely going to be snipping that clip out and uh, playing that on loop for, for a lot of people, but I think that's, that's awesome. And keep telling. And again, thank you so much for telling your story. And I hope you do thank keep you. telling. I hope, I hope to see, you know, when it comes to legislation or, or more of the advocacy, I'm excited to see where that goes. And it's an uphill battle, especially in States like Oklahoma, where there is so much protection, it's a smaller tight knit area. Um, but you know, if you keep telling it, there's no telling what could happen. You know, there's a yeah, lot of opportunity there. <laughs> right. Right. My voice is not going to go away. So. Right. Well, awesome. Well, if you're listening, be sure to grab a copy of Prayed Upon. It's an absolutely amazing book. And uh, if you're sitting there and you've heard us talk about grooming on the show, but you're, you feel like you haven't been able to see a clear example of what that looks like, uh, it's definitely well worth it. And for anybody who's been in a similar situation, I think it'll be encouraging to see uh, you know, a similar story played out in a, in a really, really well-written way. And uh, Amy, thank you so much for, for joining me on the show. I really do appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Preacher Boys podcast. If you appreciated the content on the show, please leave a review on iTunes. And don't forget to connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter with the handle at Preacher Boys Doc. Additional information can always be found on PreacherBoysDoc.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.